Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Bronze Age, Episode 2, Part 2, The Shepherd Kings. This past Saturday, I essentially left you with the historical equivalent of a tongue twister. After spending all that time emphasizing how the Hyksos were decidedly unlike the quote-unquote native rulers that preceded them, how they very visibly emphasized their foreign extraction through, among other things, their style of dress, their modes of worship, and most notably through their royal titles themselves, which prominently emphasized that they were rulers of foreign lands, I then dropped a bombshell on you. It turns out that the previous dynasty the Hyksos overthrew to seize power might, let me stress that, might, have been in part ruled by Semites themselves, ethnically identical to the Hyksos allegedly overthrowing them. The implications behind this are, simply put, as immense as they are utterly confusing. So, let's dive in, and try to resolve the dilemma as quickly as possible. One of the greatest tragedies of the Bronze Age, at least from a historical perspective, is that so little tangible evidence from the era actually survives today. This is further compounded by the fact that dating the evidence we have introduces a veritable bucket load of new challenges, especially when it comes to placing important historical events, figures, and even entire reigns. Remember from the first episode on the Battle of Kadesh, there are five independent chronologies commonly used to date events from the Middle Bronze Age which is the period we're dealing with here. Conveniently, modern Egyptian chronology has arrived at a general scholarly consensus, but such a scale is still very much fluctuating and constantly in dispute. I'll reiterate what I said in episode one. I'm not here to argue about timing. I'm just here to tell the generally agreed upon version of events. Who knows? The way archeological advancements are being made on the daily, Half of what I say now might be completely and utterly outdated in the next century. That's the beauty of science. The ugliness, of course, ensues when it becomes quite obvious that several pharaohs from around the 14th to 15th dynasty period simply exist outside of time and space. The next few minutes are going to refer heavily to the work of Kim Reiholt, professor of Egyptology at the University of Copenhagen who is widely considered to be a preeminent scholar of the Second Intermediate Period. Full disclaimer, his works, especially those dating certain monarchs of the 14th dynasty, do not go without controversy. In his work on the Turin King List, a veritable Bronze Age royal database probably compiled around the reign of Ramesses II, Reiholt identifies four pharaohs he dates to the 14th dynasty that have Semitic names. My personal favorite is Kara, which literally just means the bald one. Heck of a way to be remembered. You can understand why this sorta of turns traditional Egyptology on its head. For the past few centuries, historians compiled Egypt's pharaohs into neat little boxes. You had your native-born ones, way later on you had your Greek ones, you had the occasional Nubian one, and sometime in the 17th century BC, a bunch of Semites overthrew one group of natives before another group of natives finally drove them out. Except now, if you buy Reiholt's theory, 
The Ixos don't really represent a unique force at all. Parts of Egypt governed by Semitic peoples would have been par for the course at that time. But there's that one little conspicuous detail that stands out. Why didn't the alleged 14th dynasty Semite rulers call themselves rulers of foreign lands when their 15th dynasty successors did? And I think that goes back to a constantly recurring theme of Hyksos rule. The pharaohs of dynasty 15 were, to quote the American Research Center in Egypt, constantly renegotiating their identities as the context demanded, emphasizing Egyptian traditions or their West Asian origins, unquote. Finally, in a position of strength rather than that of outright subservience to native-born masters, the cosmopolitan Semite Egyptians of the Avarice region sought to take a middle ground between their ancestral heritage and the cultural norms of the region they were now inhabiting. But in the end, this didn't work out perfectly. To so aptly quote my beloved high school business professor, when you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit from both ways. And, spoiler alert, the Hyksos are about to get hit. Hard. But more on that later. It feels like I've spent 90% of the past two episodes railing on and on about how the poor rulers of foreign lands were doomed from the start. So, let's really kick it off. In the previous episode, I talked a lot about how Avarice was quickly becoming a veritable seat of Egyptian might in the Bronze Age world. And furthermore, how West Asians, i.e. the future Hyksos, were becoming increasingly powerful in Lower Egypt. Now, it's time to push off the proverbial row of dominoes and put the Hyksos on the throne. Unlike Manetho's quote-unquote blast of God, in other words, the supposedly violent, chaotic, and absolutely terrifying armed invasion that led to the 14th dynasty's dissolution and the rise of the 15th in its stead, the truth of the matter was probably, well, pretty boring as far as regime change goes. There were no Game of Thrones-style clashes over who took what throne or who wore what crown. In fact, I'd be genuinely surprised if there was as much intrigue involved in the Hyksos ascendancy as there is in the average game of poker. From the evidence at hand, it looks like a classic case of small-scale societal collapse. Massive immigration and an overabundant trade network brought fast-spreading plague, Said fast-spreading plague killed off a lot of people, which in turn weakened the existing government's mandate. And then, oh, around roughly 1640 BC, the local palace burnt to the ground, which, surprise, surprise, would be a major destabilizing factor for any budding society. The literal seat of government ceased to exist overnight. It's no coincidence that around this time we start seeing pharaohs openly calling themselves rulers of foreign lands, in addition to their Egyptian royal titles. The vacuum created by a weakened, decentralized kingdom paired with a vibrant and sizable West Asian community in the region created the perfect conditions for the 15th dynasty to begin. And at the beginning of Hyksos' reign, everything was, for lack of a better phrase, pretty damn prosperous. The size of avarice tripled, and under its height during Hyksos' rule, it housed as many as an estimated 25,000 people. The Hyksos pharaohs maintained an extensive diplomatic network, including long-standing communications with the old Babylonian dynasty of Hammurabi, 
of the Code of Hammurabi fame, mind you, and tried their best to integrate rather than supersede Egyptian traditions with their own. Native-born Egyptians occupied significant positions of power under the Avarice-based dynasty. Even the gods they worshipped, most significantly the Canaanite Baal, were syncretized with Egyptian deities so the Hyksos could lull those they lorded over into a sense of spiritual security. See, we're not so bad after all. We worship the same gods you do. Kinda, sorta, maybe, but still, I mean, what more can you ask for from foreign rulers? Sure, there were definitely some cultural differences. The Ixos are prominently depicted in wall art favoring practically technicolored clothing, while the native Egyptians usually stuck to drab old white. Their names probably sounded weird to the average Egyptian ear. They buried their donkeys in pairs to possibly cart them off to the afterlife? Huh, that's a new one. Continuing on the burial trend, they also usually didn't bury themselves with the traditional Egyptian protective amulets for the afterlife, like the infamous scarab beetle. <gasps> I know, absolutely shocking. And their architectural style was so obviously foreign. But even their supposed arch-rivals, like the Thebes-based kings in Upper Egypt, seemed to enjoy incredibly cordial relations with them for quite some time. But, as any historian worth his or her salt can tell you, stasis is impossible when it comes to the game of politics. How unfortunate for the Hyksos. Because now, they've been standing in the middle of the road a little too long, and it's time for them to get hit. The following story is an anecdotal account from Manetho that I'm including as much for flavor as I am for historical reasons. Remember, Bronze Age Rule number 5055 is never, ever take what Manetho says for granted. Apparently one day the Hyksos pharaoh Pepi sent a letter to the 17th dynasty Theban pharaoh Sekhenenret Ta, telling him to, and I quote, Do away with the hippopotamus pool which is on the east of the city, for they prevent me from sleeping day and night. Now, just in case you're wondering, no. A massive war isn't going to break out because of what essentially amounts to a glorified noise complaint. It's gonna be even stupider. You see, what Apepi is really complaining about here in the subtext of the letter is how the Thebans quite regularly hunted hippos inside their domain. This greatly offended the Hyksos, because in their worship of Set, who, sidebar, they conflated with the Canaanite god Baal, they regularly incorporated hippos in their ceremonies. The crux of this letter isn't, those darn hippos halfway across the country are keeping me up at night. It's, hey, can you please stop disrespecting my religion? Second Enre didn't really get the message. In fact, quite the opposite. He interpreted the command in the letter to be a direct challenge to his sovereignty, and so, as megalomaniacal self-styled god-king rulers were wont to do in the Bronze Age, he raised a massive army and marched on Avarice. Except it didn't go well for him. More than that, the whole affair ended with Second Enre taking a Hyksos war axe to the face. In fact, his mummy still has the imprint of a distinctive West Asian duckbill blade that lodged itself in his forehead. So yeah, the invasion was repelled, 
the Theban pharaoh got his skull caved in on the battlefield, and the Hyksos collectively breathed a sigh of relief because... Oh, what's that? You're telling me that the Thebans are raising more armies? That they're planning to besiege Avarice again and again until they finally obliterate the Hyksos presence from this earth? Oh. Gee. Maybe someone should tell those Hyksos over there to stop celebrating and, I don't know, pick up a couple of spears or something? Oh. They're dead. The Thebans already killed them? That's pretty depressing. So yeah, in short, the next few years weren't very prosperous at all for our poor little rulers of foreign lands. As the wars with Thebes dragged on, Avarice actually entered a state of protracted decline. The 15th dynasty was dependent on both tribute and luxury goods from southern, or upper, Egypt for financial prosperity. And when conflict started, these trade routes were almost immediately shut off, leaving the northern Egyptian kingdom with practically nothing to offer their trading partners in the Mediterranean. This reached a breaking point near the end of Hyksos' rule in northern Egypt, when the people of Avarice became so desperate, they actually started looting elite cemeteries to find trinkets that might be worth hawking off. Far from the bustling international metropolis of its heyday, the Avarice of the late 15th dynasty was both incredibly isolated and incredibly poor. This is perhaps best displayed by the decline in the quality of pottery produced in this era. As opposed to luxurious imported pottery that once frequented the markets of the city, you were now more likely to find shoddy local knockoffs, with what can only be described as poor craftsmanship. Even the weaponry degenerated. No longer being able to afford Levantine tin used in the production of bronze, the Hyksos now made armaments of copper. Before we end the story of the Hyksos once and for all, I'd like to provide two quotes. The first from Manetho, and the second from the first century Romano-Jewish historian Josephus. Quote, For what cause I know not, a blast of the gods smote us, and unexpectedly, invaders of an obscure race marched in confidence of victory against our land. Unquote. Quote, by main force, they easily overpowered the rulers of the land. They then burned our cities ruthlessly, razed to the ground the temples of the gods, and treated all the natives with a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others, and appointing as king one of their number. These two quotes, of course, were meant to describe the alleged Hyksos invasion that supposedly annihilated the 14th dynasty. Today, I argue they far more aptly describe the terror inflicted on the inhabitants of Lower Egypt by the unrelenting Theban onslaught of the late Second Intermediate Period. The decline of Hyksos' rule was slow and torturous, yes, but at its conclusion their Theban rivals were downright sadistic in their final push to unseat the shepherd kings. By Manetho's account, an army 480,000 men strong marched on Avarice. A banal over-exaggeration ancient chroniclers are often guilty of, but still one which emphasizes just how one-sided the upcoming showdown was to be. Even still, the Hyksos refused to break. The first three offenses Opmos led against Avarice were failures, 
Only on the fourth attempt did he manage to take his highly coveted prize. The ancient historians, especially Manetho, who commented on the aftermath of the siege, reported that Atmos, in a display of Egyptian mercy, as opposed to the wanton cruelty of the Hyksos, allowed the rulers of foreign lands to leave Egypt willingly. The historical evidence which survives today, unsurprisingly, strongly disagrees with such a rosy portrait. Atmos's surviving temple at Abydos is adored with scenes of bloody battle and severed hands. The central palace of Avarice was, for the second time in about a century, raised to the ground. The survivors were either enslaved or pressed into military service, scattered like seeds to the wind all over Egypt. Only a few had the luxury of remaining in the city that was once the gem of the Bronze Age Mediterranean. And by that point, Avarice was nothing more than a hollowed-out shell of itself. So yeah, bummer, right? Truth be told, for the Hyksos there isn't much of a happy ending when it comes to this one. A short while later, Atmos marched up to the final Hyksos stronghold of Shiruhan and, following a brutal three-year-long siege, destroyed it, removing the last fortress of the rulers of foreign lands, which still survived within the newly christened 18th dynasty's line of sight. The beginning of direct Egyptian involvement in the Levant, as opposed to the other way around, would set off a chain of events that eventually culminated in the Battle of Kadesh some 300-odd years later in 1274 BC. So now we've come full circle. But it wouldn't be fair to the Hyksos to just leave their story off on such a sour note, especially when we know how immense their contributions were to Egyptian society. The first recorded horse found in Egypt was a mare buried in a Hyksos palace. With that, of course, came the chariot, a vehicle so ubiquitously associated with ancient Egypt which, ironically, might have just come from their greatest rivals. Even the composite bow, which was once widely accepted as an Egyptian innovation, might have originated in the court of the Shepherd Kings. There are, of course, more subtle innovations we can credit the Hyksos for as well. I mentioned earlier that the rulers of foreign lands maintained widespread diplomatic networks across the Bronze Age Mediterranean. Their successors in the 18th dynasty followed the example set by the Hyksos and went to work getting in touch with every ruler they could find. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the Hundred Years of Warfare between Avarice and Thebes was probably the biggest, if not the sole, motivating factor for the establishment of a standing army in Egypt, the first in the region's history. The pharaohs of the New Kingdom later used this army to successfully expand Egyptian hegemony throughout Africa and the Levant. So, paradoxically, the Ixos are partly to blame for the rise of the Egyptian Empire. This all begs the question, then. Why were the Hyksos so reviled? Even today, in articles published as recently as 2019, I'm looking at you, Nat Geo, the rulers of foreign lands are painted not as innovative rulers who left deeply felt marks on Egyptian society, but rather as barbaric, vicious, and downright monstrous mongrels who sought to ravage, pillage, and murder whatever they could get their hands on. And to be honest, the answer is simple. Propaganda. 
even as early as the reign of the Theban pharaoh Camos, poor second Enre's successor, the Ixos are purposefully portrayed as either humorously inept or disturbingly savage beasts. The New Kingdom's legitimacy, in part, rested on the fact that they'd expelled the alleged foreign usurpers. Without that casus belli, the whole lot were just a bunch of bloodthirsty warmongers, no better than the ones they cast out. Eventually, with the passage of a few thousand years, the Ixos snowballed from a relatively benign, if somewhat exotic, chapter in Egypt's history to a physical manifestation of the kingdom's worst fears. Robbed of their personhood, the Ixos were reduced to a typical bugbear, a representation of the shame of a subjugated Egypt. In short, the poor shepherd kings just needed a good PR rep. Although their achievements will remain largely unsung, and although we know practically nothing tangible about them outside the basics, the Ixos remain a fascinating group of players in the complex history of what is now Egypt. It's been great getting to research them a bit for the past few, well, months, really, and I hope I did their story justice. That's the end for today's episode, and for a little while at least, where our Egyptian saga is going to pause. The Bronze Age world was a big one, and I don't want to just keep the podcast isolated to one corner of that very large planet. I haven't yet decided what the next episode is going to cover, though if I had to hazard a guess, it'd probably be dealing with either Bronze Age Greece or a detour to Asia. Notice I'm not saying when that next episode will be out. I am terrible when it comes to planning out this stuff. I mean, this whole episode was a whole three months late. God willing, I can get the next episode out before the end of the month. But, of course, we'll just have to wait and see. As always, shout out to my viewers, especially in Europe, which, to my surprise, has formed the bulk of this podcast listening base. I hope this episode can hold you over until next time, when I bring you some more Tales from the Bronze Age.